And if you'll remember, we are we have been in the process of evaluating the first king of Israel and what his character is, and if he will uh, well be a good king, if he will prove himself a, a good first king. Um, we've seen some things we like. We've seen some things that trouble us. But as you can tell from last week and, of course, into this week, now we find out once and for all the true character of, man, of the man, really the heart of the man, as um, Samuel will explain for us. So Samuel had a mission from the Lord to Saul, an important mission, a very special, serious um, mission, and that was to deal with the Amalekites, the ancient and really the first enemy that Israel ever had, even before they got to Mount Sinai. God gave them victory and said at some point, he would deal with them and wipe off their presence from the face of the earth. And in God's divine calendar, that time has come. And he sends uh, Samuel to tell Saul, get Israel together, get your armies together. I'm going, I want you to defeat the Malachites. I'm going to deal with them. And I want you to basically devote them to destruction. We talked about how that really is a word for worship. And in this sense, God's people, when they needed to, when they were supposed to eradicate a wicked people from existence, it was offered up as worship to God. It was kind of like the land, his people were being um, consecrated or being sanctified in the removal of that evil. And those people, those evil people were being sanctified in their removal as well. And it's all an act of worship to God. So all I have to say, this was very serious. And Saul needed to take it very seriously. And I can almost imagine Samuel saying, please don't mess this up. Do it right. Do it the way you're supposed to. He started out well. Um, he got the armies together, went out, get ready to, to fight the, the Amalekites. And even then there was that group of people, the Kenites, that had helped Israel in the past. And Saul waited and said, guys, get out of here. You don't want to get in the midst of this fight. I wanted to show you mercy for what you did for us. So even remembering a little bit of the history of um, Israel's dealings with other nations. And they did defeat the Amalekites. But we get to verse 8 and we're sorely disappointed as Saul makes the decision. Creative obedience, which is disobedience. I'm going to go ahead and spare the king and the best of the sheep and the cattle and their goods. Um, and did not utterly destroy them. The language here is that the people in Saul made a um, specific decision to do things their own way. Creative obedience, again, as I called it before. They may have been happy with that, but of course God was not pleased at all. So we have 15, verse 10, chapter 15. And he remember God says to Samuel, it repenteth or regrets me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Partial obedience was not obedience to God. And that is something to be reminded of for us. When God makes it clear, this is what I want you to do, whether by command or his principles applied are very clear. Um, when we only go partially that way, it's not full obedience and God is not pleased by that. Um, and... Remember this whole idea of God um, regretting, repenting. This has the idea of he's greatly grieved by sin. 
really, in the end, is what that means. And it also grieved Samuel, and it kept him up all night, crying to the Lord. But he was ready early in the morning. He thought he knew where Saul was, but he went out to look for Saul, verse 12, and he found out Saul wasn't where he thought he was, and he got information on where he was. Something I went missed or I skipped over last week that's important. Let's look at verse 12. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place or a monument. Saul made a memorial for himself first, and now he's gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal, and Gilgal has religious significance. So here in this description of Saul's journeying, we have him worry more about his own legacy and building his own monument before he goes to Gilgal and does the appropriate worship things um, that he's supposed to do. Again, who comes first here? It's not the Lord with Saul. And Samuel meets Saul, and Saul, of course, really doesn't seem to have any idea that there's anything wrong. Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Well, you spoke a little too soon there, Saul. And of course, Samuel then points out that the cattle is there and Saul gives his excuse for why he didn't obey in the exact way that God intended and had commanded him to do. And of course, uh, the mark of a weak leader, blaming it on your people. instead. Now, there are times where it is the people and, you, and the leader has to stand with God rather than the people. But certainly this is not the case um, Saul had a part in this decision to do wrong, and he blames the people that are under him for this. They took the best of the sheep and, and the oxen, and, you know, what, what are you going to do, Samuel? But even as he was giving that excuse, verse 16, it's almost like, well, really, Samuel says, he says, stay or stop. Stop the excuses, Saul. Now I'm going to tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. So Saul says, well, go ahead. And Samuel said, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. When you were humble um, and not, not even sure that you could be king, wasn't it then that God anointed and decided that you were going to be king? The Lord sent thee on a, on a journey or on a mission, the special mission. He was clear, going utterly destroy the sins, the sinners, the Amalekites. Wipe them out utterly. Utterly means completely. And fight against them until they be consumed. Consumed means completely consumed. This, this was not hard to figure out, right? And then he says, verse 19, Wherefore then didst thou not, you did not obey the voice of the Lord, Saul, but you did fly or pounce upon the spoil. It's almost the idea of you were energetic and quick to do your own thing. You weren't quick to obey God. You were quick to do what you wanted to do and ascribe God to it kind of thing. And you pounced on the spoil and did evil. You've actually committed evil in the sight of the Lord. And now Saul's arguing with Samuel again, showing his heart. No, yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. You know, I've gone the way, the mission, which I've, I've accomplished the mission the Lord sent me on. I, I brought the king, see? And I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Again, his own version of obedience. That's not what God expects. And the people, then he blames the people again. 
But then he points out, but they really wanted, they wanted these things to sacrifice and worship to the Lord, Samuel. So this is all good. And, um, you know, I, I decided that this was the best way to obey God in my own um, mind. And of course, Samuel then has these um, very well-known words as he responds to this in a very poetic way, but very um, indicting and very direct. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Um, here Samuel is going to indict Saul's actions, and he's going to fully now reveal the king's deficiencies. We've been looking at Saul and evaluating him, and Samuel is going to help us here and give the final evaluation of who Saul is, and he's going to point out his deficiencies. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness, not just having a stubborn attitude, although there are certain, there are certain sinful aspects to being stubborn too that we have to be careful about. This is being presumptuous. This is basically, I'm presuming what I think is right on what God says is right. And that is as iniquity and idolatry. It's worshiping yourself rather than God. Here's our first, our final analysis of this first king's leadership. Saul has been found sorely lacking, disappointing. He lacks the most important aspect of a Jewish king. He does not have a heart for God, but he has rejected God because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. Saul is willing to go through the motions, burnt offering sacrifices as he remembers them and as they kind of benefit him. And after he's already kind of give himself credit in a lot of ways, he's willing to go through the motions, right? But he really has no concern to truly, to fully obey. He doesn't have a heart for that. Sacrifice was important, right? Well, nobody would argue that. But it didn't, was never supposed to supplant obedience or substitute for obedience, um, Part of obedience was doing it the way that God had said and making sure that your heart was prepared. Again, you have this whole idea. Saul seems very happy to take God's commandments under advisement, but he's going to make his own decisions in the end about what's best. And what does a true heart of obedience do? Well, it's far more important to God than one who just goes through the motions. And really at the end here, what do we have? What do we have in Saul's heart as it's described here? Saul is at his core rebellious. Why? Because he pursues his own way and he presumes that he knows best rather than humble himself before God's commands. Right? Rebellion is as bad as witchcraft. And if you've ever used even when we talk with our kids many times, we point out that when you rebel against mom and dad's authority, that is a very serious situation. Well, why does it say witchcraft? Witch, witchcraft was considered a particularly egregious sin in the culture of Israel. It was depending upon the adversary's power rather than God's power. And God um, considered it very evil and very wicked. But surprisingly, rebellion is also equated here with the same kind of wickedness and evil. And it just shows how, um, how dark and evil rebellion is in the sight of God. 
when we rebel against him. God, sin is much more serious to God many times. Sins that sometimes we struggle with or we see regularly, much more serious to God than it is to us. But rebellious is a um, very evil sin indeed. But then also insubordination is basically Saul's elevating one's own will as a God. He was elevating what he thought was best over God, and therefore he was in idolatry. He was worshiping himself. And so ultimately then, Samuel says, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. Saul rejected God's leadership. God rejects Saul's leadership. Very sobering words here. Saul gets a sense here that this is very serious, and he turns finally from giving excuses to giving, maybe surprisingly here, a repentant, an apology really. Is it real? Does Saul truly repent here in verse 24? Let's look at this. And Saul said unto Samuel, Samuel, you got me. All right, I've sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words. Right? That's good. His description of his sin, this really has the idea, it describes, this word for sin describes missing the mark. It's one of those Hebrew words for sin that specifically means that we've missed the mark of God's righteous standard for obedience. Well, that's good. Saul recognizes that, that he has not lived up to um, his responsibilities and obedience with God, at least by his words he's saying that. But is he going to be totally honest about his motivation for his sin? Then he says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Really, Saul? There wasn't anything in it for you at all? You didn't look at the king and you didn't look at those things and think, I could get something out of this, some sort of riches or gain? I think most likely there was a good chance that King Saul was also looking out for himself. But he doesn't want to make that apparent as he's apologizing for his actions, because I feared the people. He's not being really honest about this. He surely had his own designs for disobedience as well. So what does he say then? Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn or return again with me that I may worship the Lord. Do you notice something here? Saul still is spiritually dull. He's asking Samuel literally to forgive his sin, as if Samuel can forgive sin. Now, we're going to have other kings that sin, and they know who to go to. They know they'll go to ask the Lord to forgive them. But it's just another kind of small sign here, but it's just like Saul doesn't get it. He doesn't really understand how this whole relationship with God works. Samuel, will will you forgive my sin? Samuel can't forgive sin. Samuel, though, in his response here is going to clear the fog, so to speak, on um, any wrong for any wrong motivation. And he says here, and Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and thou hast rejected, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. It's not the people, Saul, it's you. You have rejected the Lord. You will not submit to him. And even as eventually we measure Saul's sins that we know of against sins of other kings that come later on, 
we might look at them and say, well, you know, a lot of these kings were sinful and did, and did wicked things. But Saul in particular sinned because he was exalting himself in his heart. And he wasn't, he wasn't humbling himself before God. It was his heart attitude that was the real problem with Saul. And Samuel says, I'm not going to go back with you and make people think that everything is okay. Saul, you will not regain your kingship. You've rejected the Lord. You cannot have your kingship back. And Samuel will not give him any false hope um, by seeming to support him in front of the people. So he turns to leave, and Saul seems to get angry here. Don't you turn your back on me, Samuel. And what happens? As Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle or his robe, and it tore, it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath torn or rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Strong, direct words as Saul gives this action. It gives Samuel opportunity to, again, emphasize what Saul has done. Here's something I didn't realize before in studying this, though. It seems there's a good possibility here. And as I was um, reading about this, one commentator um, named Bergen pointed this out, that, um, that leaders, priests, and, and God's leaders, and this probably would include Samuel as well, would wear tassels on their robes. Those tassels at the bottoms of their robes were representative of the commandments. And so most likely there's a good chance here that as Saul reaches down to grab Samuel, he actually tears one of those tassels. And it is another picture of Saul breaching the commandments of the Lord, interestingly enough. And as he tears that, then um, Samuel points out, uses the moment to dramatically signify Saul has lost the kingdom because of his careless disobedience. And there is another Saul who's going to come who will be much more careful to obey God. Not perfectly, but he will have a heart to obey God. Saul obviously does not have a heart for God and does not have a heart to obey him. And so he's lost the kingdom. Now, could Saul repent even at this point, even though he's lost his ability to be king at some point? There's still that option. And we'll see in the future whether Saul will do that with the rest of his life. But Samuel also makes uses this opportunity of this action to point something else out about God that gives us the balance of something that we were talking about last week. Verse 29, and also the strength or glory of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent or have regret. And here's the balance here that helps us to understand um, that when God is saying, I repent or I regret that I've made Saul king, Samuel reminds us here, but it's not as if God is saying that he has made a mistake or something that he shouldn't have done, something that she, he should regret, because God doesn't make mistakes, is what Samuel's saying here. He doesn't do things that later on he has to regret. Everything that he does is done perfectly. It's done in his sovereign will. And he refers to him as the strength of Israel. This seems to be a new 
um, title for God that Samuel, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, um, comes up with for God. And this has the idea of the glory of Israel or even that God is everlasting, the everlasting of Israel. And God, who is sovereign, who is everlasting, who is glory, does not repent. He does not change. What a wonderful truth that is. Even as we come before the Lord to pray, for, pray to him tonight, folks, we come to pray to the God that doesn't make mistakes, that doesn't look down and see our actions and say, oh, I regret that I gave that person that responsibility or, or I had them do that in that way. I, I really should have thought through that a little better. God never says that. But we can go to him with whatever we're dealing with and we can trust that God will always have the right answer, that he'll always do the right thing. And Samuel says, you should have had more respect and honor for such a God, Saul, and you did not. Well, Saul is still very insistent in verse 30. Then he said, I, I have sinned, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn or return again with me that I may worship the Lord. And then he says this again for the second time, your God, thy God. Again, these little hints, but this really does a small, one small word that indicates that in the end, Saul doesn't really feel like God is his God. And he doesn't really have a relationship with God like Samuel does. He's your God, Samuel. Will you talk with him? Will you um, get repent or, or forgiveness for me? But the biggest part of this as well that, that, that Saul shows is a problem. He wants Samuel to return with him because he doesn't want the people to know that he's been rejected. In the end now, we get more of the idea maybe of why Saul is repenting. It's because he wants to look better in front of other people. And he wants Samuel to come back with him so that nobody will know that he's been rejected as king. Please make this look good, Samuel. And for whatever reason we see here, Samuel relents. And it says, Samuel went to Ramah and saw, oh, excuse me, um, I skipped ahead. Verse 31. So Samuel turned again after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord, at least in actions. Again, without a heart for obedience. But there's one more aspect here, okay, that Saul was supposed to take care of. It was part of his responsibility, and he will now not be permitted to perform his finally, final kingly responsibility in the Amalekite mission. Samuel is going to have to do it for him. And so Samuel asks, calls for Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to be brought out. Then said Samuel, bring ye hither to me, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, I'm sure that Samuel's pretty fed up, um, uh, angry. We've seen this before, but he's also um, energized with the spirit of the Lord for about what's to happen next. And Agag came unto him. There's a word here that means either delicately or cheerfully. And whatever the case, Agag comes before Samuel with the idea of hey, whew, great relief. I'm glad you guys spared my life, whether he's kind of um, delicately, everything okay, guys? You know, thanks for spending, spare, or, or sparing my life, or it's more like Saul. Hey, you know, everything's great. We're, we're good friends. You spared my life, and, and, and I'll serve you, and whatever. He's 
totally missed the whole situation and the, the spirit of things right now. And he says, Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Well, this is the last time he'll ever have any um, joy or any relief in his life here because Samuel has a different word for him. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And this, by the way, shows us as another example of the wickedness of these um, enemy pagan people. That they really, this picture here of people that have no problem putting to death women that are pregnant, little babies, and all these things. Does it sound like a society we live in today that really has no desire or real um, a, a desire to protect the unborn or the helpless or defenseless? Just another reason in all of this why these people had to be dealt with. And Samuel did deal with Agag, didn't he? And we have young ears here. You can read that and get the picture there. But Samuel took out Agag in a very vivid way. And it, it obviously, even for an older man, Samuel still got some strength, obviously, to be able to perform this. And then at that point, verse 34, Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned or grieved for Saul. And not only Samuel, but the Lord repented. He regretted. He grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul would never interact with Samuel again. He would never have access to Israel's greatest spiritual leader. He had lost that entirely. But both Samuel and God still grieve over Saul's sin. Do we still grieve when, we, when people uh, really mess up their lives and they fall away and they're not a part of church anymore or, or they do something that tremendously damages their life and maybe they're even in prison or something and, and they've just put, allowed themselves through their sin to be put in some very difficult circumstances? Do we just kind of pass over it and think, well, we told them. We tried to warn them and they just wouldn't listen. Oh, well. Or does it still grieve us? Folks, we know that we're growing in our relationship with the Lord if we are grieved over people's sin. If God the Father is grieved over our sin, we should grieve over our own sin and also the sins of others that damage and ruin their lives. That ought to work us up. That ought to bother us. Friends and family that won't repent of their sin and then allow it to work and damage their lives. We ought to be praying. We ought to be grieved over that. We ought to take time tonight, even if you have someone that you'd like us to pray for that is struggling through something like that, we can pray for them. And let's grieve and ask the Lord to help them. Well, let's go on into chapter 16 here, because we're going now to be introduced to that replacement that will replace Saul. A man that does have a heart for God. And we're going to see here that God is going to prepare in the next few chapters another, a future king. But the first thing that God has to do, we're going to see a king that God approved. Saul was the king the people approved. It didn't work out so well. The next king is one that God approved. We're going to see a shepherd boy as anointed king. 
6.1, and the Lord said unto Samuel, how long will thou mourn or grieve for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Jesse who lives in Bethlehem, for I have provided me a king among his sons. There's a time for grieving folks and there's a time for taking action. And God says to Samuel, the grieving time's over, Samuel. Let's move on. I've got other work for you to do. Time for action. And interesting that God will confront and work in Samuel's life um, in, in much the same way that he will a king. A king, a prophet, God um, works in both. And here he is kind of reprimanding, kind of prodding Samuel. Samuel's not perfect. Samuel, get a move on. I got work for you to do. I've got a mission for you, Samuel. I got a special mission for you to accomplish. And so what God requires of a king, he can also require of a prophet. What's his special mission? That is to go get, get going and anoint the next king. I've rejected Saul. Let's get on to the next king. And really, in the end, this would, this anointing of this new king, one author has said, this would be the capstone to Samuel's career. This will be the highlight before the Lord takes him home, the end, the capstone, the jewel in the crown of his whole career to anoint this particular person as king. Now, it's a simple, but in fact, it's also kind of a dangerous mission. We miss this sometimes. And um, he says, I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. Understand that Saul is probably, after all that Samuel has told him about being rejected as a king, probably monitoring in some way or another. We, we find out later on that Saul has ways of keeping track of his enemies. He's probably monitoring Samuel's travels after being denounced as king watching him, and certainly if he finds out that Samuel has anointed someone else to be a future king, that's not going to go over real well with Saul, right? That makes perfect sense. So God, in essence, kind of provides cover for Samuel, not in like a deceitful way, but he says this, um, the Lord said, take a heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord, and call or invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I declare, whom I name unto thee. Taking a heifer is the idea of um, Samuel or leaders could provide this, and it would um, allow Samuel to offer a sacrifice and provide atonement for wrongdoing in certain circumstances. Um, and so God says, take this with you, and you can offer a sacrifice with this. And Saul won't know why you're doing this, really. But the people get a little nervous about this as he approaches them. So God gives him the ability to, to or, or protects him in this way. But then also God says in verse 3, he says, you just wait on me and continue on in your mission. Just like, by, by the way, he told Saul. Remember, he told Saul to wait on Samuel. Now Samuel gets to wait on God. Samuel doesn't know when God is going to let him know who the king is. He's just going to um, meet Jesse and go through the motions, and God will tell him in his own good time. But Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his presence and said, Comest thou peacefully? Now, why would they tremble? Well, he's bringing a heifer, 
And he's probably, they're thinking he's going to offer sacrifice. And they're thinking, uh-oh, somebody in our town has done something really bad for Samuel, our greatest spiritual leader in our nation, to be here to offer sacrifice. One of us is in big trouble. And so they're nervous. <laughs> hey, Samuel, why are you here? Come to stop by just to visit? And Samuel says, I've come peaceably. Don't worry. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify, consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. This involved a whole series of things where they would bathe, where they would keep themselves from certain things in order to sanctify themselves. It was a process that they had to do. He's basically saying, I have a special meeting here, and you need to be consecrated and make sure that you're prepared for this special meeting that's about to take place. And he sanctified, he finds Jesse and his sons, and called or invited them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's appoint anointed is before him. Samuel walks into the same trap as do the children of Israel. Here's a guy, tall, handsome. Samuel says, worked for Saul. There it is. He's definitely leadership quality because of his looks. You think even veteran seasoned leaders, servants of God can still fall prey to mistakes and, um, and just into old patterns of human thinking. And so Saul, Samuel kind of stumbles here, but God corrects him and says, verse 7, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Kind of like, Samuel, come on. You should know better than this. That's why the people chose Saul, and he didn't work out so well, did he? This guy's going to be different. So remember this, because I have refused. I've rejected Saul. Don't be looking for someone like Saul. I just rejected Saul. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. I know we're just a couple minutes over here, but can I park here just for a minute on something that just is a personal irritation? Um, this is a well-known verse, a well-known, simple principle. Probably one of the more well-known verses of the Old Testament. Most of us could uh, recite this um, to someone else. And yet so many times, even though we ought to know better, I see this principle being broken and being, and the opposite being true many times in ministry. I remember family members when I was younger saying things like, oh, if so-and-so, that, that sports figure, if they could just get saved, do you know the power and how God could use that individual, if they would just trust Christ. Well, that's true, but there's a whole other aspect of this that, that God doesn't need the best and the brightest. He can use anybody that he wants, and we don't know that person's heart. So if, if you don't want to tempt your pastor to sarcasm sometimes, please don't ever say anything like that, okay? <laughs> or I might say something like, yeah, that's true. Because God couldn't use um, the second string person that sits on the bench most of the time, right? Or God couldn't use the person who has to um, work two extra jobs and works at a, at a diner some nights because they don't have a lot of money. God doesn't use a little shepherd boy, right? 
Let's remember, folks, and we can do this. I've seen this in ministry where people get all excited. They're looking for a leader, whether it's a church or whether it's a camp or whatever. And we tend to gravitate toward tall, strong, handsome. Oh, God's going to use them. Let's remember the basics again, right? God can use anybody he wants. God can use the little shorty who's a little squatty and not very good at sports or whatever, and but has a heart for the Lord. Only the Lord knows in the end who has a heart for him. So let's be real careful with the whole physical features thing and, and even somebody that may uh, purport themselves as being all together. Wow, that person is going to do big things for God. So can anybody. If God can use a donkey to accomplish his purposes and he can use any of us right so let's remember that this is a principle that again i see over and over again gets overlooked and let's not let's make sure that we are not guilty of that so jesse called abinadab and made him pass before samuel he said neither hath the lord chosen this then jesse made shama to pass by and he said nope not him either and jesse made seven of his sons to pass before samuel and they all passed, and Samuel still waiting for a word from the Lord. The Lord, and he said unto Jesse, "The Lord's not chosen any of your sons." And Samuel's probably thinking, "Lord, you did say Jesse, right? What's going on here?" And Sam, so he finally thinks, "Samuel, um, Jesse, do you have any other kids? Are we missing somebody?" And he said, "Well, there remaineth yet the youngest, or this really has idea the youngest, or the smallest, smallest in height, small children." were not considered the most particularly useful and maybe many times overlooked. They were kind of considered insignificant. Smallest. Yeah, he's there. We've got one more, but he keepeth the sheep. He's out shepherding. And Samuel said unto Jesse, well, bring him in. Send and fetch him. We will not sit down to our the banquet, whatever, the celebration, till he come hither. And he sent and he brought him in. Now, everything I said uh, before about the outward appearance, don't misunderstand me. Um, David's not lacking when it comes to good looks, as we see here. He was ruddy. Anybody know what ruddy means? Is there anybody in here that's ruddy? Red cheeks or more? I think more likely some sort of red tint to the hair, actually something like that. My beautiful wife is somewhat ruddy in, the, in a good way. <laughs> And she, yeah, well, we just, we'll delete that on. Um, but, um, and then he, and he also says now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance. In the Hebrew here, it may have the idea of beautiful, handsome eyes, goodly to look on. He is a handsome guy, even though he's young and small. So he's not doing bad in the looks department. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother. And that idea of the oil that was specially prepared as it poured over him and into his hair and into his pores and into his clothing really had the picture of God entering into him for service. And that's exactly what happened, right? And the spirit of the Lord, just like happened with Saul, came, but it, it has the idea of rushed upon David. And now we know his name, David, from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So now we get to assess the next person in line to be king. Will he be one that has a heart to obey God? And we will find out in the next few weeks as we, well, many, many weeks as we continue to study about David, the shepherd boy who has been anointed king. So 
lots of principles to um, remember in this. I won't go back through them, but just remember, remember that God knows the heart and God can use all of us. And even as we pray tonight, let's have that attitude of wanting to please God, of submitted to him and expect, expecting that he will answer our prayers.